But as we come to 1 Kings tonight, David is still alive. He's on the very final chapter of his life. He'll step into eternity at the age of 70. But from the context, when it introduces him in the first verse of this book, it says that he was old, advanced in years, that the words there implied in the original imply that he's frail. He's physically very frail. So we know some people at 70 are very strong and maybe uh, just a little bit healthier than other people at 70. But in this case, and even 80 or 90 for that matter, but at this case, the, in the original Hebrew, Pastor Chuck brought this up in his teachings, that it implies that he is physically frail. But we'll see tonight in the text, he's still alert when he needs to be. And there's a, we've talked about this last week with David coming to the end of his life. There is an end, and if we live long enough, there'll be a day when we are old and advanced in years, and we can only hope and pray that, uh, like we're being here tonight with Jesus, that we'll make good decisions on the journey. So we're just the best version of who we can be in faith with Jesus at that time in our life. Even today, I dropped off for my dad in assisted living toothpaste and some other items that he needed, shampoo and, and being in his room and just, sit, you know, he was in the food, he was in the dining room when I got there and I put everything in his room and I, I just thought, this is my dad's little place and then they brought him up and I got to see him and everything. I just thought, you know, it's a reminder, even on this text today, seeing my dad at 92 in his little world and he, people that love him and take care of him and I don't know, when I talked about this on Tuesday night, I went into detail, but I won't do that tonight, but just, you need to know, David is old and frail, physically frail and Yet, the most important thing he has to do in his life, it's arguably the most important thing to do in his entire life, he's got to do in this chapter tonight, chapter 1. So, as he's frail and vulnerable, he can't get warm. It's a circulation thing, which we're familiar with happens when you can get older. He can't get warm, so they bring the Shunammite, they look for a, a young virgin woman, to, virgin woman to lay with him to keep him warm, to keep his body warm like body heat. And they find Abishag, uh, the Shunammite, so she takes care of him. He's not involved with her, like, uh, you know, intimately. But she takes good care of him, like a daughter would or something of that nature. It's, it's like a little hybrid, but it's a beautiful thing. And she takes care of him. And, but he's weak. And anyone that's aspiring for power, when they see weakness in leadership, they can connive and conspire and scheme. And this is what's going on behind the scenes. So in the background of this, Adonijah, the full brother of Absalom. Now, remember, David had many wives, at least about half a dozen of them. And they had children. But the wife that he had that was the mother of Absalom, who, of course, was struck down by Joab and led the rebellion and the treason against David some couple decades before, she had two children. She's a Canaanite. So David multiplied wives, which he shouldn't have done, and he multiplied a wife with a Canaanite, which he was even more what he shouldn't have done because they were supposed to be out of the land or eradicated from the land because they would bring you down. And he got involved intimately with this woman, made her a wife, and she gave him Absalom and Adonijah. And both of these guys are super good looking, they're charismatic, and they're ambitious. So Absalom died, but his younger brother Adonijah comes on the scene. And Adonijah does the same thing. He gets the chariot, gets people running before him saying, like, all hail Adonijah. And he's aspiring to become the king. He sees the weakness of his father. And so he organizes a gathering of all the other sons, minus Solomon. Most of his dad's inner court, led by Joab, the general who was over the army. And he gathers them to proclaim that he's going to be the king. And this is the background. This is the background to the story. And in so doing, when you have kingdoms like this, and human history shows this, when there's multiple princes or princesses, for that matter, and there's 
contention for the power, and it's not clear who's going to send. So often it's a power struggle politically, economically, militarily, and whoever wins it comes to power, and they usually banish or execute the other people because they represent a threat. So, for example, in Russian history, there was one prince who had survived uh, a slaughter of princes during the reign of the Romanovs, which, of course, is about a 400-year reign from Ivan the Terrible in the 1600s. But this one prince was put away in a castle in a place off the grid, and no one even really knew he existed. He was the hidden prince. And that prince was like a chess piece that represented leverage for aspiring men and women to bring forth under a monarchy to say, this is a contender for the throne of the current throne of Russia. And this is very common. This happened all over Europe and in the Asian dynasties as well for thousands of years in human nature. And remember, historically, the planet as a whole has been governed by kings and queens for 5,000 plus years. The democracies and socialism and communism, these models of government are very recent to the human race. If you study most histories, all cultures, Asiatic as well, it's kings and queens. And so this is really common. So in this case, this is important. Solomon and Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, because we're going to come into the text, their lives would be threatened. If Adonijah becomes king, they're a direct threat to Adonijah's reign. And so he's going to He could banish them, he could execute them, but he will certainly dethrone Bathsheba, the queen mother, and the primary wife, the true wife of David. This is our background. One more piece of information that's very insightful to this text tonight. When Solomon was born, it was after the first child died. If you recall when David and Bathsheba committed adultery, it was on David, not Bathsheba, that they had the child. And that child died. It was born, it lived seven days, and David fasted and prayed for the child and interceded for the child. And the child died. And David was brokenhearted, and that's when he said, I can't bring the child back, but I'll go to him. So he broke the fast after the child died. But then we're told immediately after that in chapter 12, the chapter of chastening and consequences with the Lord for King David, in the prime of his reign, the Lord gives him Solomon. And we're told that the Lord, it says, the Holy Spirit tells us, the Lord loved Solomon. And the Lord was merciful to David and Bathsheba. And after their broken hearts over the child of adultery was taken by the Lord, he gave them Solomon. And he's called beloved of the Lord because the Lord loved Solomon. The Lord chose Solomon. When he was born, God spoke through some means or another, either directly to David or through the prophets like Gad or Nathan, and said, Solomon, I love. This is my grace to you. It's a really great example, like Romans 5 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And in that background, Solomon was born, and he's the gift of grace and mercy to David and Bathsheba after the heartache of the adultery, the death of Uriah, and the death of the son. That's very important to our background tonight. Because now Solomon's a man, and he's a prince, and he's the beloved of the Lord as called by the Lord. Which is interesting because Adonijah means love the, to love, I love the Lord Jehovah. His name literally means to love the Lord Jehovah. So when he was born to the Canaanite woman, David gave him this name. Or maybe the Canaanite mom gave him this name. But the Canaanite mom, there's no reason to believe that she served the Lord or worshipped Jehovah. So this is very interesting because our key players in the text on Tuesday in the verse by verse and tonight topically are Adonijah and Solomon. But really tonight, more focus again on David. But one of these guys is going to be the king. One is exalting himself, the text said that, and the other is being 
One exalts himself with a name that says he should love the Lord Jehovah, but does anything other than what would look like someone who serves the Lord Jehovah. The other has wisdom to be revealed. Even before he asks for wisdom, his wisdom is acknowledged in the latter part of this chapter. We see it and in the next chapter before chapter three, where he has the vision where he asks God for wisdom. David mentions his wisdom twice in chapter 2. You you use your wisdom that God's given you. It was very clear that Solomon was not only the beloved of the Lord, but very capable to be the king. It's quite obvious, contextually in the first couple chapters. But it's ironic. Adonijah means, I will love the Lord God Jehovah, but he didn't. And Solomon means beloved of the Lord. One is, it's like David gave the one son the name hoping he'll be that guy that will serve the Lord and love the Lord. Adonijah, the son of the Canaanite, Canaanitess, but that's just because you call the flesh a spiritual name doesn't mean it's going to be spiritual. But God was gracious and gave Solomon and said he's beloved of the Lord and that's from the Lord. What a contrast. There's more to it when you really think about it. If you wake up at three in the morning like Hey, think about those two things and how they represent so much if you really go deeper in your thought process on it. So that's the background. And as we pick it up verse by verse right now for topical, we're going to pick it up in verse 15 because God had a plan with Solomon for a better future, a better tomorrow. And I think it's a very important topic for all of us on planet Earth in late August 2022 because it's doom and gloom with the mainstream media, alternative media, and pretty much everywhere you look, it's doom and gloom. The sky is falling. But when Solomon came to power, and he comes to power in this chapter. It's all moving toward a better tomorrow, a better future. And I believe through faith in Jesus Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ, our best day is always today. And there's a better one in front of us tomorrow. Because that's faith. And the arm of the Lord is not short. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think that's very important, especially for us to think about when we look at young people. And I say this quite often. So our theme tonight is a better tomorrow, but we got to get there. we got to get to the future, and it's, it's going on right now. So verse 15. So the news came to Bathsheba what was going on. And so Bathsheba went into the chamber of the king based on counsel she received from Nathan the prophet. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed down and did homage to the king. And the king said, what is your wish? And then she, that is Bathsheba, said to him, My lord, you swore by the Lord your God, to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord, the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance, and he's invited all the sons of the king, Abathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. So they told the king, saying, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, O king, you have said, have you said Adonijah Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and all the commanders of the army and Abathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiadiah, 
nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king, and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So when Nathan heard about what was going on with Adonijah and all these key people, he came to Bathsheba and said, look, your life is on the line and your son. We need to come up with a plan. The plan is you go in first and say this, and I'll come in after that, which is what we just read. This Bathsheba, we have her speaking in 2 Samuel saying to David, I'm with child. Remember that? Wow, that's, I mean, that was like, that's a heavy, for, I mean, he slept with Uriah's wife, tried to get Uriah to sleep with her so he would think the child was his after that, but he thought he got away with something and she sent him the note, I'm with child. That's what we get from Bathsheba in the Bible. I'm with child under very un- unpleasant circumstances, adultery. And now we have her speaking again. So that's the flower of her youth, and now this is the end of her life, the latter part of her life. She's the queen mom, queen mother. And her son has been promised to be the king by David. If you, I draw your attention where she said in verse 17, my Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, that's her, Surely Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on the throne. This is a very important verse. This kind of puts in motion a lot of this chapter because she is holding David accountable for his words. And for all the shortcomings of David that we've seen in First and Second Samuel, we've never really seen him not keep his word. Keeping our word and the integrity of our word is the single most important attribute you can have in your life. And I know I say, like, forgiveness is the greatest attribute. Suffering with the Lord is a great attribute. Purity is a chosen great attribute with the Lord. These are great equities in the spiritual kingdom. But the integrity of our word is so crucial and so critical for our life in marriage for 50 years. As a parent with consistency for our children. How about with being grandparents, consistency with the grandkids? I mean, I know if I promise Clementine or Zippy or Velzy or Wilkie something, hey, whatever it takes. I mean, I got to sell something. I got to go Craigslist, whatever it takes. We got to come through with this. From here to eternity, I can guarantee one of the highest objectives I have is always follow through with the grandkids with what I say I'm going to do for them. Right? That's, that's a given. And, of course, those with grandkids understand how significant that is. And those with children and maybe young adult children, you understand how important that is. Because by the time he's a man or she's a woman, you realize they lived in a house with you for 18-plus years. And when they go away to college or they get married or do this, and they wake up and they live the life they're going to live as adults without you there with that influence, they're going to remember, was your yes, yes, and was your no, no? Were you consistent or was it yes and no? Because we know with the Father of lights, there's no shadow of turning. And in Jesus Christ, all the promises are, what, yes and amen. We know that. So it's super important, obviously. That's why in the New Testament, it's reaffirmed. Hey, don't swear on the, Jesus said, don't swear on the gold of the temple. Don't swear on the altar. Just say what it is. That's enough. Your word should be enough. Hmm. Then James says in the first epistle written chronologically in the timeline of the early church, listen, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything other than that is just of sin and of the flesh. The most basic foundation of the Christian, someone saying they're a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
is that we keep our word. Now, occasionally something happens where you can't. Like, say you promise to be somewhere, and then you get COVID, and you're so sick, you don't even remember you promised it, right? Things like that can happen, right? I mean, you're gonna, I'm going to meet you there, and then someone steals your car. Like, things like that, or your catechotic converter. Things like that happen. But really, the pattern of our self-determination in life, if we're confessing Christ as our Lord and Savior, the moment we say that Christ has come in, that we've received Christ, that if we're a new creation, even if, I mean, the world appreciates secular people who keep their word. They should. But how much more so the disciple of Jesus Christ? We need to, in a world where the lying and corruption and deceit is just always prevalent and affecting a lot of people, we need to be consistent with the integrity of our word. And David was consistent with the integrity of his word. Now, maybe you can see me afterwards and say, hey, I just thought of something where David did not keep his word up. It doesn't come to me right away. And as we've gone through all this, it doesn't jump out at me. As I just look at David's life, obviously he was deceitful with Uriah, but he's held accountable for that. But he, he, he did what he needed to do. And he trusted in the Lord to bring things about. And the people we admire and aspire to in the Bible, women and men, there are women and men who keep their word. They're consistent with their word. People that we look up to, if we study church history, we, we, look, we look to those and admire those who keep their word. And people that we've looked up to in our own lives that have impacted us favorably, ideally in Jesus' name, people that we look up to over us, they've kept their word. They've been true to their word. Once you lose that credibility, you really lose something. And if you lose it with your employees, you've lost it. If you lose it with your spouse, you've lost it. If you lose it with your children, you've lost it. If you lose it in the ministry, you've lost it. It is so important to keep your word. And here in a time when David is old and advanced in years and physically frail, Bathsheba comes into him and says, reminds him, you swore by the Lord. You swore by the Lord saying, Solomon shall reign after me and sit on the throne. She takes him back to the promise he made and says, you swore. And that's all she's holding him to. She's holding him to like, you said you would do this. She's reminding him. And she says, because it's so urgent, it's such a sensitive thing, it's such a critical thing that's at, uh, in play here, is that it's very time sensitive. We'll see that in just a moment when we talk about his action. But he made a promise. I couldn't help but think of the Lord of the Rings when Samwise Gumshi says, a promise is a promise. When he starts to go in the water, right? You know, like he's not going to leave Frodo. A promise is a promise. You know, Samwise Gumshi. And I thought, you know, like, yeah, even J.R. Tolkien gets it. A promise is a promise. And we need to keep our word. It's so important. And where you've not kept your word, I would say in Jesus' name, try and correct it and do what you can. It's just so critical. Maybe you're like me. We're a little more old school on this. But one of the things that in the last 10, 20 years that has really bothered me with coaches in the professional world and collegiate world is where they sign contracts to be a coach, a five-year contract, and then they break the contract because USC came calling or Texas or some other university 
And they have escape clauses in their contracts. They all do now. But I just go back to John Wooden, the great basketball coach from UCLA. And I've told this story because it has impacted me for the last 15, 20 years when he became a, a, someone I respected in their leadership. But John Wooden was the coach of Indiana State basketball a long time ago. And he grew up on a farm where his parents lost the farm during the Depression. And his dad lost the farm, worked hard, bought another farm, and cleared all of his debt. His dad was a man of integrity. John Wooden, is considered the greatest coach of all time, was a man of integrity. And he was offered a job coaching Minnesota basketball in the Big Ten. And that's, an, you know, going from the Indiana State Sycamores to the Big Ten was a big step up. And that was his dream job because he's a professor. He's a professor. He's a teacher. So you taught and then you coach. The two went together. And the, the dream job was Minnesota Gophers, Big Ten. He's a Midwest guy. But he had a backup offer from UCLA. It was not an appealing job at the time. This is early 50s. Come out here, live in Brentwood, coach the Bruins. It was the second job. It's not the one he wanted. And he told UCLA that he would let them know at 7 p.m. whether or not he would accept their offer. And Minnesota basketball was supposed to call him at 6 p.m. to offer him. He was going to get the job. They need to let him know by 6 p.m. on this one night. Well, there was a blizzard in the Midwest that night, and the, all the phone lines were down or in that area. So John Wooden did not get the call from the Minnesota Golden Gophers at 6 p.m. that night, and he called UCLA basketball at 7 p.m. that same night, central time, and said he would accept the job. At 8 p.m., Minnesota called and said, we're giving you the job. And he said, I already took the UCLA job. And he never looked back. And the rest is his life history not to mention 10 NCAA titles and his influence on people like Kumail Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton, Gail Goodrich, the rest of them, Sidney Wicks, all. I mean, you go to any bookstore in America and find John Wooden books. You go online and Google John Wooden books on leadership. Today, even to this day, the highest award you can win in college basketball is a John Wooden Award because it deals with the integrity of who the man was. That's... That has inspired me so much as an Olympic coach in the past and as a pastor presently, which is what I've been for 34 years. She says, you need to keep your word. And it's like when the mom says to the dad, you know, the eyes of all the children are on you. Uh, Hey, the grandchildren are watching you, Grandpa. Or the Starbucks employees, they're watching you. The Disney employees are watching you. The plumbing employees, they're watching you. They're watching you right now. All the eyes of the rocket People that help you build the rocket, they're watching you, Mr. Rocket Builder. They're all on you right now. Are you going to keep your word? David was a man after God's own heart, and his wife came in and said, you need to keep your word. You promised this. And everyone's watching you. Do you realize, had David, there's a vacuum in leadership as he's laying in this bed, cold. And the whole nation's waiting to see what's going to happen. And Adonijah says, I'm your future king. But evidently, many people knew that Solomon was a future king based upon what David promised. Like, hey, you know, in the castle, they say David promised it to Solomon. Well, then what's Adonijah doing out here with all these other guys, huh? It's going to be a civil war again. We just barely recovered from the Absalom thing 15 years ago, right? And ladies, I was telling, I think I was talking to Brad, I asked Sam, I forget, it might have been Scott Cunningham Tuesday night. You know, aren't you glad when your wife comes and you go like, hey, all the eyes are on you. You know, husbands need wives that go like, hey, you know what? The eyes, of, the eyes are on you. 
That's a strong exhortation. And ladies, don't be afraid to say it to your husbands. Even though he's the king and you're the queen, he's like, hey, you just go in there and tell it the way it is. Hey, listen, what are you going to do? Because people are watching you. It's good to have a wife hold you accountable to be true to your word. A better tomorrow is always going to begin when men and women remember the promises they've made and they keep them. That day for the future. And when they step into eternity, everyone they leave behind can say they kept their word. And that's a great baton of character to pass on to any people you love that are left behind, friends and acquaintances. The second thing that happens in this story, though, is verse 28, we pick it up that, well, okay, King David, he's, he's out of bed now. He's like, well, you know, what? huh? what's going on? Then King David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. So Bathsheba would have stepped out when Nathan came in the room. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, As surely Solomon your son shall be king after me, he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I will certainly do it this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the earth, paid homage to the king, and said, Let my lord king David live forever. So David gets the information from Bathsheba, gets the information from Nathan, and he makes us. Now, there are certain things that will get you going when you're a little bit older. If someone's taking your money or you hear like someone did your money, like, oh, hey, what, what now? Hey, whoa, you know, like I've noticed with my dad. Anything about money, like, hey, what, what's going on? Like, you'll, you'll snap out of it pretty quick, right? But I'm thinking about David. All you had, all you had to say to David is Joab. I mean, Joab, you know, like, like he could be in memory care, asleep with the TV on, and someone goes, Joab, he'd be like, you know, like, Joab is Joab. Like, Joab was a thorn in his side his whole life, and he tried to fire him more than once. Joab shed innocent blood. David had constantly say, that's what he did. It's not on my household or my family. We've seen that. We'll see that in the next chapter with Solomon. Solomon goes, like, that's all on him. It's not on my household. That's on Joab. But Joab was such a thorn in the flesh for David. And it was, remember, Joab put the spear, contrary to David's wish, through Absalom. And now Joab is aligned with Adonijah. And it doesn't say it, but we know the characters and we know enough supporting verses that if David thought even for a moment that Joab would take the life of Solomon, whoa. Because David loved Solomon. David promised Solomon the throne. And David grieved and sobbed, Solomon, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. He sobbed with a grief unspeakable, which we studied in topically a couple weeks ago, over Absalom and knowing that Joab is the one who put the javelin through Absalom, contrary to what the king told him to do. Joab could disobey the king and get away with it. And by golly, not on this day, Joab is not going to be yoked with Adonijah, the younger brother of Absalom, and execute my son, the son of grace, the son of mercy, the beloved of the Lord. That is not going to happen. And this day, I'm advocating the throne or surrendering the throne, yielding the throne. Now, since I'm 60, I can say this. But the danger of getting old is you don't let go. It's older people, you know, if you're a, a hoarder, you keep hoarding, generally speaking, without the Lord intervening. Like, so often when someone dies, well, Debbie Bryson's a great realtor down there in Vista, good friends of our family and my mom. She, when 
She told me that so many times when a house, when someone passes away with elderly people, they just, they'll just roll up the 10 by 30 dumpster, you know, those big blue ones, and they just chuck it. All these things that people couldn't let go of, they just chuck it. My mom was really smart. As she was getting older and on the clock from 75 to 85, she gave everything away. She identified it in her will. Oh, Phil gets the coffee table. Joe gets the shell from Guam, you know, and all these things. The, you know, the, this jewelry goes to Barbie and this thing. My, my, mom, my mom's will was like, you know, my Catholic mom from the Midwest. Like, it's in detail, you know. It's like, like a garage sale. Everything itemized, who gets what. And then she'd revise it every two years and give us a fresh copy. Like, oh, I'm giving Joe the table now because Phil's on my bad list. My mom should say, I'm revising the will. Like when she's next, I'm going to change the will. I'm like, well, you just do that. But as we get older, it gets harder to let go of things. It gets, it gets harder to let go. And I suppose the last thing you really let go of as an elderly person is your checkbook and control of your finances. And you can only hope on that day that you're turned over to someone that you trust and they're trustworthy. Right? In case you didn't think about it, that's eventually where it goes. Eventually, you can't write your checks. You can't pay your bills. When my dad was getting fuzzy about... Eight years ago, when he's still living on his own, we didn't realize it, but he was mixing up which checkbooks he was paying for stuff. So when I, be, when I became the steward of his estate and t- took care of stuff, I was going through these checkbooks, and he, he was confused. So the last year and a half where he was in charge of his money, he was very confused over who he was paying and what and all this stuff, and, and we were able to intervene at the right time, just in time. But you don't want to let go. So think about this. You're the king of Israel, and you might be laying in bed with circulation problems, but the queen mom is still Bathsheba. You still control assets the, the size of Southern California and the wealth of millions and billions of dollars equivalent for that economy at that time. You're still the most powerful man in Israel. You're still the anointed one of, of God. You're the king. And you know, on this day, in that bed where he's cold, he gets out of bed and says, I'm yielding it now. I'm letting go of all of it today. The power, his identity, the CEO of the company, you know, the, the figurehead, he let go. And there's such a good witness for us here. There's such a good testimony for us because the only way to resolve this is he had to let it go. If you've ever taken care of your elderly parents and they didn't have things in order with the trust or the will or something had to be changed or they had to do a revocation of power attorney, the older they get, the harder it is to do it. It's harder to get them to go somewhere to a notary or a lawyer and sit down. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? Yes, yeah, there's, yeah. It gets harder. That's why it's really important you do this stuff in your 50s and 60s. And if you revise it every few years what people do, that's good. But I can't tell you how many people I've ministered to whose elderly parents left in eternity that never put this stuff in order. And whenever I drive by a house in, for sale and it's in probate, that just tells me someone didn't put that in order. Because that means the man or whoever controlled it didn't let go, take 45 minutes of their day to go down, sign a piece of paper with a notary, submit it and have it on record and make copies for all the relatives, for the, the beneficiaries. But to let go of being the king of Israel, that's, think about what David let go of this day. Because, you know, some people have to have power till the very end. But life is letting go, letting go, letting go, and eventually, like... People, you can't remember their name. They take care of you, and they help you bathe, and they, they help you dress. Because I watch that every day I'm involved with my dad. 
I said to Jennifer, I'm not sure if I'm going to keep shaving my dad because it seems like his hair is kind of not growing anymore. His facial hair is kind of slowed down. And she goes, oh, you should shave it. He likes it. My dad, I realized about four years ago, couldn't, couldn't shave anymore. So I use electric razor when it's short. I have to get the good razor when it's a little bit longer. He gets all the hair on his neck. But we'll have golf on. He even likes surfing. He watches WSL, the pro surfing. And I'm like, he moves around while I'm shaving, but it takes about 20 minutes. It, t- it takes a while to shave my dad. There comes a day when we're so let go that we can't wash our hair, ladies. And we can't shave men. So I think the great application here is if God's telling you to let go, let go. Let go of the past. Those are good memories. Those are photo albums. I've got a whole book. In my bookcase, I have about 12 photo albums from the time Jennifer and I got married until the kids were adults. I keep saying I'm going to do the grandkid album, but I haven't done it yet because it's all on the phone, right? I'm old school, but I still got one old school photo album unused yet that I'm, one of these days I'm going to do it. And that's what it becomes. Like I prayed tonight, like the Chronicles are not yet. They become memories. And you let them go. There's a time you let go of this and move to Virginia. There's a time you let go of Virginia and move to Vermont. There's a time you let go of Vermont and move to Cardiff. There's a time you let go of life in Cardiff and you move to Costa Mesa. There's a time you let go of serving with Pastor Brian and you land here at Shoreline. And there's times you, people, all the people we love that have moved on, we let go. One of the greatest attributes you can have as a godly woman, as a godly man, is the ability to let go. To let go of dreams, to let go of loved ones, to let go of assets and wealth, to just give it to the Lord. I, I pray with a man here in the first few years of the church. I share this story occasionally. He had gotten ripped off by his business partner for $5 million. $5 million. And he's quite calm about it. Nice man. His daughters did gymnastics. They were very good. And that's how the connection was there because that's when Leah, our daughter, did gymnastics. So he heard about the church and he came out. And he was telling me this story. I was like, Wait, your business partner ripped you off for five million? He's like, five million dollars. Yeah, he did it all. Sold everything, shady contracts, all this stuff. I, and his daughters at this time were like 16 and 14. I said, oh, wow. Like, that's, what are you going to do? Like, he said, oh, I let it go. I was like, wow, man. I get upset over five bucks. <laughs> My mom will fight you for five cents on the phone for a whole day. You know what I'm saying? I tell mom, your life, your, your life is worth more than $5 to be on the phone for three hours. No, it's a matter of principle. But you know what he said to me? He said, life is very short, and my daughters are teenagers, and I want to enjoy this time in their life. And the lawsuit could go on for five to ten years, and who knows if I'll see the end of it, and why would, it, why, would that affect the joy of my life with my daughters in this season that will be gone soon enough? Man, I'll never forget praying like that man. He never came again. I said, that's the man that forgave his business partner for $5 million. And that's an inspiration to me. We have to let go. I'm so proud of David for letting go of the throne on this day. Because he's so old and it's his whole identity. I'm the king of Israel, but what do you say in his final words? I'm the psalmist. Remember when he, when he saw Chronicles, or Samuel, he said, I'm the psalmist. That was his legacy, but who knows? Maybe he's in the desert going, I'm the king, I'm the king. But maybe it's, all he said here was Joab. You never know what the Lord's going to use to get us moving. But he had words that hadn't been proven. He said something, but it didn't have action. But here, here, oh, we got action. 
We got, maybe all they had to hear was Joab is aligned with Adonijah. We don't know, but we've got action. And his action is so commendable this day. And he had let go of a lot in his life, hadn't he? He had to let go of Absalom. He had to let go of the child with Bathsheba. He had to let go of so many things. But look what he says when he's letting go of his identity, of his place of power, of his control of wealth, because he still controlled the wealth. He said, as the Lord lives, who's redeemed my life from every distress, this day, I'm going to do this. And he did. Isn't that awesome? When he's reaffirming, I promised you in this past, in the past, I'm going to do this. And now today I'm doing it. You can count on my word. I promise it. I'm doing it today. And as I do it, I'm going to remind all of you, the Lord who has redeemed me of every distress in my life, he's been faithful in every situation. We got this. Me and the King of Kings got this. Me and Jehovah got this. Me and the one who called my son Solomon, beloved of the Lord. We got this. I tried to make Adonijah love the Lord, loves Jehovah, whatever. Me and the Lord, we got this. On the day of Christ Jesus, we got this. See, he is reaffirming the original promise and he's affirming his faith and God's faithfulness to him. God has never let me down. He has never left me hanging. He's been everything I've ever needed him to be, like the song we were singing with Bobby earlier. And now he says, you know what? I'm giving up the throne today. I'm not waiting for tomorrow to give up the throne. I'm giving up the throne today. And he did. Isn't that beautiful? It's letting go. It's letting go. It's letting go of people we love very much. And I'm going to miss them. It's letting go. But it's a beautiful thing. Nothing stays the same. We don't want to stare at each other getting older unless we're meant to stare at each other getting older, right? If we're meant to be here getting older, let's all stare at each other and get older together, right? But if you're meant to go somewhere in Jesus' name, then go be fruitful in Jesus' name where he's taking you. You got to let go. Man, letting go is the most important thing. As I've gone through all these things in life, whether it's people, dreams, all this stuff, there's a time for action. And the action, the promise comes to pass. David takes the actions. I'm going to do it this day. He reaffirms the promise. He affirms his testimony of faith. And he gets it done with urgency. He rose to the occasion. Man, he rose to the occasion. And now we pick it up. In verse 32. Oh, excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 32. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehodiah. So they came before the king. And the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. Now the mule is the king's mule. There's only one of them. No one else can have a mule. It's the king's mule, it's his pony. Either he rides it or decides who rides it, but you don't just ride the king's pony. That's his mule. It's very symbolic, very important. There, verse 34, there let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, blow the horn, and say, long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Verse 36, Benaiah the son of Jehadadiah answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord, the king, say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my king, David. 
Zadok, so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehedidiah, the Cherethites, the Peleothites, that's his secret service, his private guard, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn. And all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people, this is the general population, they went up after him. And the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy. So the earth seemed to split with their sound. Oh, it's, it's a new beginning. It's a new beginning. There's some really good stuff in the first part of Kings with Solomon coming to the throne. It's a new beginning, and it's a joyful day in Jerusalem. Now, side note, this news all came to Adonijah and Joab and all those guys, and it came to them through Jonathan, what had happened with Solomon in the rest of the chapter 41 on. It came to them, and it was affirmed that Solomon sits on the throne, that people are blessing him, and that people are praying that he'll be more blessed than David was, and that God will be with him. And everyone split from Adonijah, and Adonijah knew his life was now on the line. So it's kind of like Haman in the book of Esther, the noose you build. Yeah, that could be the noose you hang in. So Adonijah would have been executing Solomon, but now the roles reverse. So he goes and grabs the altar of God and sends, it comes to Solomon that Adonijah's there begging for mercy. And Solomon gives him mercy. He says, if he proves a worthy man, life will be great. But if he's a scoundrel, he'll pay for it. So the very first thing Solomon had to do as king is decide what to do with Adonijah. And he handled it wisely. Now, next week, verse by verse in chapter 2, we really get, hey, Shimei, Joab, all this stuff. It goes down before David steps into eternity and then after he steps into eternity and what Solomon has to do. But this, this is the chapter where Solomon is now king. He's on the throne. Like, David's not there. It's like the first week that the pastor's no longer the pastor and there's a new pastor. It's like, hey, you know, they're not just filling in or maybe they brought someone from the outside, whatever. It's like, they're gone. They, that's it. And that's just, there's a new CEO and we know that there's transition with changes, right? Like when companies change CEOs, they often merge. They let people go. They acquire these people. They bring in their own people, sports programs, schools, deans of universities, athletic administrators in big colleges. This stuff goes on all the time. It goes on all the time. Change in leadership happens in life all the time. And in American politics, every four, every two years. In Russian politics, maybe once every 50 years, uh, Different countries, different things, right? They go different ways. But this is a tremendous, dramatic change, and Solomon is established. It is a new beginning, and this is what I really want to leave us with tonight, that God is in the business of new beginnings. It's a new beginning. That's the way it works. There's just different seasons in life. You get married, you have children, they're new seasons, they're new beginnings. You leave this job, you got a new boss, it's a new beginning. You have to adjust. You have to adjust to the new boss. You have a new governor, they this way, the previous governor is that way. You move from Florida to California, it works like this. You move from California to Florida, it works like that. I mean, that's just the way it is. You get new beginnings. We get new beginnings. And God has a new beginning for Israel. And this is what I want us to remember from this story. As this new beginning was happening, Benaniah said, may your son do more than you ever did. Ben and I had the eyes of faith to believe for a greater reign from a greater king than even the great King David. And for the next 400 years, all those kings of Judah will be compared to David. Yet, if you think about it, in human history, when you mention kings, these two kings are two of the most famous kings that have ever lived in the human experience. David, the, that king of Israel, 
with the heart after God. And Solomon considered in almost all cultures, even non-Christian or even Judeo-Christian cultures, even the Asian world and the Asian religion cultures acknowledge the wisdom of Solomon. When they say Confucius, then they say, I say Confucius, you say Solomon. Like Solomon is world-renowned in human history for being one of the wisest men that ever lived. And the book of Proverbs is one of the most famous books on planet Earth. It stands alone. That's why you can go to bookstores and find just the book of Proverbs. Because the book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote It stands alone for some of the greatest wisdom ever written. So David was the king that had the heart for God, and his son was the king that had the wisdom from God, and together the two of them are considered two of the greatest kings that ever lived. Everything after that, it's Rehoboam. You get some good guys, Josiah, Hezekiah, but these are two great ones. This was an upgrade. In fact, if you're speaking, just politically speaking, the time of Solomon, there was no war. He He had a... The tent, he had the military strength that just deterred anyone. David had battles all the time with everybody. Solomon had a secure border, and he had stables and armies and calories. It's like, what? He had all the wealth. He was the smartest man, the richest man, the wisest man that ever lived in his time. The Bible tells us he was that guy on planet Earth. They got an upgrade. For the next 30, 40 years, if you lived during that time, and when that czar or that prime minister or that queen or king came to power, it was a, it was a time of safety and security. It was a prosperous time. Economically, it was a good time. And he did love the Lord. He makes mistakes just like his dad. But in the end, Solomon was beloved of the Lord. And they prayed that things would be better when he became king. And this is the vision we all want. When we think about change in our life, when we think about change in other people's lives, when we think that we have to just let go, we need to keep our word, we need to let go, Let go and believe something greater. Believe a greater future for who's replacing you at your workplace. Believe a greater future for your children as they become adults in the world. Believe a greater future for these kids in our children's ministry as you minister to them, that there's a future and hope for them that exceeds ours. Let the world worry about collapsing economies. But let the church reflect faith, of convictions of faith, confidence in the Lord. My vision for what God wants to do in this church, spiritually, numerically, and economically, is completely free from anything that I hear outside the walls of this church. This is the house of the Lord, and my faith is built up in this place for me, my family, my health, my children, my children's children, you, the body of Christ, the Calvary Chapel movement, the universal church, and I ask for more so I can give more, and he gives more. We're not running to the hills. We're running to the front. We're not trying to flee from the action and retracting. We're we're stepping out in faith and expanding. That's who we are in Jesus' name as the body of Christ. So I want us all to go home tonight from this text realizing that they prayed that Solomon was the beginning of something better. And I pray for you in your personal lives as we turn the corner on August for the final third of this year that you will believe God for something bigger and something better for your life in the times of change. And you will always look at the next generation and the one coming behind him that you will believe something bigger and better for them in the, to the glory of Christ and for the purposes of Christ in their life. Don't ever dumb down God when you look at the next generation. Remember who's on the throne. And remember his promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same, and his promises are always yes and amen. Solomon reigns. It's going to get better. Jesus reigns. The king is coming, and it's going to get better. And whatever goes on around us, if it's an apocalyptic movie, that's okay. Because if he reigns on your heart, he reigns on everything that matters, right? In Jesus' name.